Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 27. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And if you're looking in those blue Bibles, you can find our passage on page 926. 926. So if you're just joining us, typically we walk through books of the Bible. We're taking kind of a a little detour on this Easter weekend. On Friday night, if you were with us, we walked through the narrative in Matthew's gospel of Jesus being crucified. And and we heard a message from that account in Matthew. So this morning, we're going to pick it up where we left off in Matthew and now look at the resurrection account. So Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 62. Matthew 27, starting in verse 62. Hear the word of the Lord. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I thought about this passage a lot this week, here's what came to my mind. It was a store. 
a store that I've confessed I've never actually been to, but I think it sounds awesome. It's a store called the Container Store. It sounds awesome because it is full of containers and full of things that keep other things in their place so that they don't get all over the place, so that they stay right where you want them to stay, stay nice and contained. I have two small children. That seems like an impossible reality. So I'm intrigued by the notion of a store full of devices that prevents things from going all over but keeps them contained, secured, locked in tight. Now the reason I've been thinking about this is because that's what the opponents of Jesus want to do with him here. They want to contain him. They want to try to seal him up and keep him under control. They want to put him in their little container, tuck him in the back of the closet, you know the container I'm talking about, and just put him way back there so as to be forever forgotten. But the problem is that the lid just won't stay on. Jesus is too strong for any container they try because Jesus refuses to be contained. He is uncontainable. And that's the resurrection reality I want us to spend our time together looking at this morning. The reality that the Jesus we see here in Matthew is a Jesus that's uncontainable. Despite the best efforts of his enemies, that's what we're supposed to see is that they throw everything they got at to containing him and yet he cannot be stopped. So to see that, we're going to look at this text and what we're going to see is a sandwich. You can go ahead and put this slide up now. Now it doesn't really look like an appetizing sandwich, but it's a sandwich here. And so what we have is there's three parts to this passage. And on the outer parts, there are two plots of the opponents. Two times that they scheme and devise plans to try to keep Jesus contained. First, their plan is keep it closed. They want to secure the grave. And then at the end, they want to keep it quiet. They want to silence the gospel. So they got these two plots on either side. The opponent's thinking, okay, we will shut him down. But in the middle, you've got the power of the resurrection. And instead of people being told to keep it closed or keep it quiet, people instead are told, come see and go tell. And they encounter the risen Jesus. Okay, so that's where we're going this morning. Is we're going to work our way through this sandwich. Keep it closed, keep it quiet, but in between, come see and go tell. So let's look at the first plot of the opponents. Their plot to keep it closed. Their goal here is to secure the grave at all costs. Look back at 2762. It says, The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So here we've got this group of 
corrupt religious leaders and this corrupt politician. They've already teamed up in the past. This isn't their first, first time working together. They've already teamed up to put Jesus to death. Remember, these were powerful people. People with a lot of influence and sway and a, a lot of things on the line that they could lose. And when Jesus comes along, he threatened their power. He threatened their sense of control. Because this Jesus refused to bow the knee to them and to allow them to keep seeking their own little kingdoms. Instead, this Jesus comes proclaiming that in him, the kingdom of God was at hand. He came proclaiming that he was the rightful king, the Christ, the Son of God. He even went so far as to call people to leave everything and follow him. Seek first his kingdom. And his kingdom was in direct opposition to the influence and plans and control of these religious leaders. This Jesus was a threat to all that the chief priests and Pharisees held dear. He had to go. So they got rid of him. They had him arrested. They accused him of blasphemy and wrongly claiming to be the king. Then on Good Friday, they killed him, and he was buried in a tomb. Now, you might think that's enough, but that's not good enough for them. They want to make sure. Yes, he's dead. Yes, we saw it. We saw that all. But there's, we got to make sure there's no way his disciples can get into that tomb and take his body and try to convince everybody he rose again. They want to make sure there's absolutely no denying Jesus lost. And no denying that his followers now have no reason to hope in him. He needs to be contained. So they meet with Pilate to discuss further measures to beef up security at the tomb. And this meeting, man, this meeting is dripping with irony. Let me just point out a few. Consider what's happening at this meeting. First, notice when they meet. In verse 62, Matthew says they meet on the next day, that is, after the day of preparation. Well, the day of preparation was Friday. The day after the day of preparation is Saturday, the Sabbath. So Matthew kind of veils, he doesn't just come right out and say the Sabbath, but he's hinting like, hey, notice when they're meeting. So why does it matter that they're doing this little powwow on the Sabbath? Well, because the Sabbath is meant to be holy to the Lord. It's a day of rest and a day to gather and worship with God's people. But here, in our scene, while Jesus, the one these Pharisees often accused of breaking the Sabbath, while he is resting in the grave, the chief priests and Pharisees take no rest in their opposition to him, and they gather not to worship the Lord, but in opposition to him. They want to make absolutely sure that Jesus stays buried. They want to make sure the followers don't snatch his body and then say, oh, we don't know where he went. He must be resurrected. Because why would they be so concerned? Because they know that this Jesus movement, this thing that's been rumbling and building steam, if word gets out that this Jesus is resurrected, this movement would explode. And there would be no way to contain it. So they asked Pilate for a favor. Now, as they asked Pilate for a favor... Favor, I want you to notice how two different people are referred to here. 
First, when these religious leaders talk to Pilate, in the ESV it says they call him sir. Now this is the same word, it's the, the Greek word kurios, that's usually translated Lord. So if you ever see Lord in your Bible, it's the same word. Now it can mean sir. But what's interesting is that in the book of Matthew, this word for Lord is used 73 times. And in all of them, it refers to either God the Father, Jesus, or someone in a parable who's representing God. Every time but one. That's right here. So this is not a word that Matthew has used often to just commonplace, hey sir, hey sir. No, no, it's always a worshipful acknowledgement of someone who has authority over you and who you revere and think highly of and who's in authority. It's like, Lord. And here they say, Lord. Not to Jesus. Not to God the Father. But to Pilate. The religious leaders are showing us here where their real allegiance lies. To the one in political power. As they said in John 19, remember these are the same people who, when Jesus is put before them, says, what shall I do with your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. They have sold out. They have exchanged their devotion to the Lord for their devotion to their politics. To the one who has the power that they craved. And so they call Pilate Lord. But what do they call Jesus? Do you see that? That imposter. This word is it's a rich word. It's like that deceiver. We might say that con man. They're setting up this Jesus saying like, you know, that guy that's hoodwinking everybody. That he's just pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. Can you believe this guy who's just, he's straight up lying to the masses. This is pretty rich coming from the ones who just put Jesus through a sham trial. Who convicted him on some trumped up charges. And will later do a full blown cover up to deceive their own people. And yet they're calling Jesus, hey you know that imposter. It's ironic. Not only that. It's also ironic that while Jesus' disciples seem to forget his promise that he would rise after three days, his opponents remember. They remember it with pretty good clarity. Now, they're not worried about him actually rising from the dead. But they are afraid that his followers will steal the body and claim that he rose again. They remember that promise. Like, ah, we know this Jesus said it. Because they think if that happens, if, if they steal his body then this fraud will be worse than the first. What was the first fraud? The first fraud was that Jesus tried to pass himself off as the real king. They say that one was bad. When this Jesus guy claimed to be king, that was bad. But they dealt with that one, right? By publicly mocking him, putting him in a purple robe and a crown of thorns on his head, and then putting him to death on a criminal's cross. They left no doubt in the public's mind. They said, there's no way Jesus could really be the king. Right? I mean, powerful kings don't get humiliated and shamed like that. But now that they've dealt with that fraud from Jesus, they want to cover their bases and make sure nothing comes of this equally ridiculous claim that he's going to rise again. 
So what do they ask Pilate to do? Order the tomb to be made secure. Make sure there's absolutely no way anyone is getting into that thing. Seal it up. Keep Jesus in there. Contain him. And notice they put a time frame on it. Until the third day. This isn't an eternal guard that in perpetuity there will be soldiers. They say, just keep it sealed until the third day. Why? Because they know the whole power of this Jesus movement hinges on whether or not he keeps his promise to rise again. Everything rides on this. They've got three days and this is either going to make or break the whole Jesus thing. If the disciples steal his body and start making claims, it's going to mean big trouble. But if three days go past and Jesus is still there in the grave, it's over. He'll be exposed as an imposter. Unable to keep these grandiose promises he's been making. People will just quickly forget Jesus as just another religious wacko who claimed to be something great but couldn't live up to his own claims. The chief priests know this. They know that they've got three days And their whole world hinges on it. So they want to make sure their victory over him is secure. As one writer said, he said, The great quest of anti-Christian power is securing Jesus' defeat. If the grave of Jesus can be secured three days, the teaching of Jesus will be wiped from the face of the earth. Everything depends on this security operation. Stakes are high. I mean, we, we, we just kind of rush past it and think, oh, they're a little paranoid. Maybe they want some guards. No, no, this is everything. If they can keep this sealed, they win. Jesus loses. It's all over. So they ask for the tomb to be made secure. And that phrase, make secure, do you see how it's used three times here for emphasis? Verse 64, 65, 66. It's make secure, make secure, make secure. They want to hammer home the point that with the governmental seal, the guard of soldiers, and the heavy stone, this tomb is made impossible to get into. The enemies of Jesus have done everything in their power to ensure his defeat. They've taken every measure. They've cut off all possibilities. Jesus is definitively contained. No way he'll be able to do anything now. Because between the disciples and Jesus stood an insurmountable barrier. Not to mention death itself. So why am I laboring to make this plain? To point this out? Because often, we can feel like Jesus isn't able to do anything to help us. We can feel like The enemy has him boxed up. He's contained. Sure, he said a lot of really nice things. He's made these great promises. And he's he's done some really amazing things in the past. We won't deny that. But now, with what I'm going through, this trial, this struggle, this challenge, the way I'm, the stuff that happened to me today, when I really need him, Our sin and the enemy have conspired together to ensure that he's sealed up nice and tight, it feels like. Sure, we know where he is, but we can't get to him. He's not going anywhere. Our situation looks hopeless, and we feel like there's no way he can do anything for us. 
every human possibility has been eliminated. That's what these chief priests are trying to do, is eliminate every human possibility. Have you ever felt like that? Just in a spot so dark, so seemingly hopeless, you feel like there's nothing. There's, I don't care if anyone in the world offered to help me right now, there's just simply nothing that can be done. There's something too big, too impossible, too insurmountable between me and Jesus. That's one part of the opponents of Jesus' plot. Keep it closed. Secure the grave. Make it impossible for the followers of Jesus to get to him. Keep him sealed up long enough to show that his promises are not trustworthy. That will put an end to all this Jesus nonsense. So make the tomb secure for three days. Now hopefully you're already thinking, for all their efforts to keep people from getting in, they never thought about the possibility of Jesus getting out. So that's the first plot of the opponents we see here. They want to secure the grave and keep it closed. Because if the grave stays shut, the promises fail. And the faith of his followers is useless. Now the good news for these chief priests, they're putting everything they got into this, right? All their eggs are in this basket. They're pulling out all the stops. And the good news for them is that their plan worked on one level. Nobody stole the body, right? But that doesn't mean the grave stayed closed. Look down at chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. All right, so now it's Sunday. The day after they asked Pilate for the guards. And two women, two Marys, who were followers of Jesus, head to his tomb. That's the tomb with a massive stone. The tomb that's sealed with a government seal. The tomb guarded by soldiers. The tomb that proves that Jesus has been contained and is not who he said he was. But what happens? There's a great earthquake. Now, that's scary enough, I suppose, that there's a great earthquake. But why is there an earthquake? Do you see this? For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. It's saying there's a connection between earthquake and angel. It's not like, oh, that's crazy. That same day there was an earthquake, there was an angel. It's saying, no, an angel came, and when an angel came, he brought an earthquake with him. So imagine what kind of terrifying creature, not from this planet, causes an earthquake by their arrival. Simply, it says he descended from heaven, and we don't know if it's when he landed, when he moved the stone. Something about this angel showing up causes the very ground to shake. Now, don't just imagine what it looks like. Imagine that you're a sketch artist trying to piece together what this creature looked like, this angel you ask the witnesses so like tell me tell me what did he look like was he tall short did he have brown hair what color was his eyes to which their reply is he 
He looked like lightning. Who looks like lightning? This angel does. And he's dressed all in white. I mean, it's no wonder these guards are terrified. Look at the effect it has on these guards. These highly trained military men familiar with the horrors of war. These aren't some unexposed, naive, oh, any, any little thing will scare me. Like these guys have been through it. And they see this angel and it says, For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The earthquake is over, but the guards are still shaking. And once again, Matthew drops a little more irony on us here. Here, the soldiers who were supposed to be guarding a dead man became like dead men. While the dead man they were guarding is now alive. And this majestic angel just rolls away the stone and sits on it in victory. This this symbol, this thing that was meant to show all that they couldn't get to. Say that you're not getting to Jesus. The angel just says, and he sits on it. I find that almost humorous. Like he's just, he turns the stone into a stool and just says, this is, this is nice, I'll just have a seat. Now we should point out here that the angel doesn't roll away the stone so Jesus could get out. He rolls it away so the women could come in and see he's already gone. I love how the early church father, a guy, I'll be honest, I did not, I've never heard of until this week, so I don't want to impress you with my knowledge of Chris, Chrysologus, everyone's famous favorite church father. Chrysologus described the scene this way, and I thought this was so good. He says about the angel, he did not roll back the stone to provide a way of escape for the Lord, but to show the world that the Lord had already risen. He rolled back the stone to help his fellow servants believe, not to help the Lord rise from the dead. And get this, he rolled back the stone for the sake of faith because it had been rolled over the tomb for the sake of unbelief. The stone had been rolled over the tomb for the sake of unbelief. What does he mean? He means that it was for our sins and our lack of trusting God that Jesus died. In the drama of Easter, all the events we've read about and sung about, in that drama of Easter, none of us is just a spectator. We are all participants. And when Jesus was crucified, it was our sin that held him to the cross. We've all rebelled against the holy God, and as we saw earlier, the wages of sin is death. That means that's what sin deserves. But Jesus had no sin. So the death he died is not for him, it's for us. The death he died is our death in our place for our sin. We killed the author of life. And when the stone was rolled over the tomb, it stood as a monument to our sin. It testified. When they saw the big stone, it's just a monument, like in a cemetery, testifying to the evil in our hearts that was no different than the chief priests. 
We wanted to keep Jesus contained so he wouldn't threaten our control and our power over our own lives. We don't like it when Jesus starts infringing on the way we want to do things, the way we want to live, the things that we like. Say, that's great, Jesus. I'll have you, but I'll keep you contained. Jesus was getting in the way of our plans and our self-centered desires, so it was our sin that shouted out, crucify him. And it was our sin that rolled the stone over the tomb. But if the stone were rolled away and Jesus was alive, that would be proof that God had accepted his payment for our sins. His resurrection would be the receipt showing that payment had been made in full. And the stone that had been a monument to our sin and death was now rolled away as an announcement of forgiveness and new life. And the empty tomb was now open to invite us to come see for ourselves. Look at verse 5. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So while the angel leaves the guards quaking in fear, he turns his attention to the women and says, but you don't need to be afraid. I'm going to let them be afraid, but you don't need to fear because I know that you're seeking the Jesus who was crucified for you. Don't be afraid because he's not here. He has risen The enemy couldn't contain him, and death couldn't hold him. Your sin couldn't defeat him. He's not here. He is risen. And don't miss those precious words, as he said. It's stunning enough that Jesus died and rose again. Like, we, you can't top that. Like, that's amazing enough. But what's even more amazing is that Jesus called his shot. In basketball or pool, sometimes people can get lucky and hit some ridiculous, incredible shot. And you think, wow. But it's another thing entirely when they call their shot and tell you exactly what they're going to do before they do it. See, I'm going to jump the eight ball off the side rail, off the seven, kiss the nine, then swirl around the ten in the corner pocket. Now, if you say that and then do it, That shows you weren't just lucky, but you have a mastery over what you're doing because it unfolded exactly like you told me you were going to do it. And Jesus didn't just happen to rise from the dead. He called his shot. Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 17, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Matthew 20, We're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. The resurrection wasn't a happy stroke of good luck. It wasn't an unexpected, pleasant surprise. 
he had risen just as he said. Even though it had seemed impossible and unbelievable, Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. He kept his promise. And friends, this should encourage us to trust him, even when it seems like what he promised us is so far from happening. We know his promises. But at times, if we're honest, we think, there's no way. That's a nice thought. I love to quote that one. I love to hear that song with that promise of Jesus in it. I know it, it's nice, but it's not happening. But the resurrection is there to remind us that Jesus does exactly what he says he will do. So we can trust him. We can trust him to forgive all our sin. Even that one. And even again. And again. We can trust him to work all things for our good. We can trust him to give us new life, to give us full and lasting joy, to never leave us, to finish what he started in us, to see us through death and take us to be with him forever. Just as he said. And then look at what the angel says. Come, see the place where he lay. The tomb is now open to invite these women to come see. Friends, the Christian faith is not a blind leap. We're invited in to see for ourselves, to examine, to look. Come see. He's really risen. And then after the angel invites them to come see, the angel goes on and says, then, that is after you've seen, go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. He's going to Galilee and you'll see him there. This is the opponent's worst nightmare. Now, not only is the tomb open so that they can see he's risen for themselves, they're going to tell others the good news as well. Look at verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So these women, man, you can imagine, they just see this angel, tombs open, they get this message, they take off. And I love the way it describes what's going on in their hearts. It says they departed with fear and great joy. There's still a fear but it's not a hopeless, despairing fear, wondering what will come of them. It's a holy, amazed fear. A fear that recognizes this Jesus is not someone to be trifled with. A fear that this Jesus is so great that not even death and the grave could contain him. It's a fear that says, how great is this Jesus? But it's mixed with great joy because this uncontainable Jesus is for them. He loved them enough to die for them in their sin, and now that he's alive again, what won't he do to help them? There is no limit to his greatness or his goodness. Nothing, nothing can hold him back. And that should leave us trembling with fear and great joy this morning. This Jesus is alive, and he's for you and me. And just when their day couldn't get any better, these women... Jesus himself meets them. The risen Christ 
goes to meet his people. And I love that Jesus chose his first witnesses to be these women. Remember, this is a culture that so devalued women, their testimony wasn't even valid in court because they were women. But Jesus doesn't choose his first appearance as the resurrected and reigning king of the universe to be to Caesar, to Pilate, to religious leaders, any of those that the world thinks are great. Jesus goes to those humble, faithful women. Those that are nothing in the world's eyes. And when he meets them, I love this, that he doesn't have a lofty speech. What would be the first words of the risen Jesus? He simply gives them the usual greeting of the day. It's as though he simply appeared to them and in our time and place, it'd be as though Jesus showed up and said, hi. Don't you love that? It's so human. And as one writer said, it has a cheerful earthiness to it. Then when he comes, notice two things about how these women respond. They take hold of his feet and worship him. And in this, we see both the humanity of Jesus and his deity. We see his humanity in that he has real, resurrected, physical feet that the women take hold of. He's not a ghost or a spirit. Have you ever noticed that most depictions of ghosts don't have feet? I'm serious. That's part of what it's saying. Like, this is no ghost. This is a real flesh and blood Jesus. They're able to really touch him and hold him. Because Christianity is not some abstract spiritual religion. It's a faith in a Jesus which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, as the Apostle John said. But at the same time, this human Jesus is no mere man. Because the women worship him. And he accepts their worship. He's not like the angel in Revelation that when John tries to worship him and falls down, the angel says, don't do that. No, 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 no. Jesus doesn't say that because it's fitting and right that we worship the risen Christ. For he is God. And then Jesus gives the women a message very similar to what the angel said. They've already come and seen. Now he says again, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they'll see me. Same message both times. Because Jesus is risen, don't be afraid. Come see. Go tell. And tell others that they'll see me too. This is the message for us this morning as well. Jesus is risen. Don't be afraid. That's what Easter's about. Don't be afraid. He's risen. We no longer have to fear sin because it's paid for. We no longer have to fear death because it's been defeated. The Jesus who was crucified is not there. He's risen. Encounter the risen Christ for yourself. See that he's real and alive and able to do far more abundantly than all that you ask or think. And then go tell others. Tell them of the Jesus who died for their sin and the Jesus who rose to give them new life. Tell them of the Jesus who is greater than sin and death and hell and every enemy and obstacle. Tell them of the Jesus who is absolutely uncontainable. 
And as we see in our last section, that's exactly what Jesus' opponents were afraid of. They ordered the grave sealed to keep it closed. Now they want the soldiers to silence the gospel and keep it quiet. Look at verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the chief priests did everything humanly possible to keep that grave secure. But Jesus couldn't be contained. Since they couldn't keep the grave closed, now they turn their attention. They want to do everything possible to keep the gospel quiet. Even when they hear the story of what the soldiers saw, they don't respond in awe or wonder. They don't say, wait a minute, what? Tell me, tell me more. Like, what happened then? And what was it like? And No, they don't respond in faith. They respond in fear. Fear that the news of a risen Jesus might spread. So they use money and influence every tool at their disposal to try to prevent the spread of the gospel. Because if they can't contain Jesus, maybe they can at least contain the news about him. I hate to break it to them. But here we are, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, worshiping a risen Jesus. Why? Because the gospel can't be contained. Human authorities have tried everything possible for centuries to stop this good news of a risen Savior. But the word of God is not bound because Jesus and his gospel are uncontainable. Friends, nothing can stop this Jesus. Nothing can hold him back. The grave is empty and Jesus is on the move, bringing life and forgiveness and joy and hope wherever he goes. So this Easter, let's press into him. Let's come see the risen Christ. And then with fear and great joy, let's go tell the world that he is raised from the dead. He is uncontainable. And because he's uncontainable, we are free indeed. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we love your son. We thank you for this Jesus. Thank you that he came to be one of us, to walk in our flesh, and then to be killed for our sins. We thank you that in him there is redemption. There is the forgiveness of sins. But God, we also thank you that this Jesus cannot be stopped by death. He cannot be contained by the grave. He's not there. He's risen. And now he is at your right hand interceding for us. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead and usher in the age to come. Lord, we long for that day. And until he comes, we long to know the power of his resurrection. We don't want it to be something we celebrate one day a year. We want it to be something we experience daily. So God, would you give that to us? 
Would you help us to know the power of your resurrection so that we might walk in the newness of life that Jesus won for us? We pray this in his name and all God's people said, amen.